The second reading is taken from John chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Here ends the reading. Oh, Father God, angels, shepherds, and wise men gathered to worship that first Christmas night. And so too do we this night. Help us now as we open up your word to gaze on Christ for ourselves. The awesome word become flesh. The Lord who is the Lamb. The one who is great and yet draws near to us and for us. Oh Lord, help us to see his glory and his grace. That our minds may be enlightened, our hearts humbled, and our lives filled with joy in him this Christmas. Amen. Please do take a seat. And we're back in John uh, chapter 2, so do grab a Bible and uh, look back to that. Uh, uh, sure, you'd find it helpful to have that open in front of you, um, or on the sheets in front of you if you're uh, the encounter guys. And just as you find that, um, and as we uh, get going, let me ask you a question. It's a classic youth group, dinner party, icebreaker question. Here it is. If you were an animal, what kind of animal would you be? Um, now, Christmas coming up rapidly on you, and sadly, I've got no Christmas crackers uh, for us to crack open. So, so, so we're just, 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 just going to roll with this, okay? No sad Christmas jokes. Maybe that's a good thing. Um, instead, I'm just going to throw you this question and go, just turn to someone close to you and share, what kind of animal do you think you are, or, or would you like to be? And depending on how well you know the people who are sharing with you, you know, maybe you could disagree and push back and give an alternative suggestion. Obviously, if you're just meeting someone for the first time, please don't go for that. That could be awkward. Um, on you go. I'll give you a minute. Okay. Okay, folks, I'll call, I'll call you back to order. There, I'm a, I'm a little bit... Um, I'm a little bit worried uh, just what kind of animal this group of folks sitting over here think I am, because they're sitting so far away from me, I think, you know, I must be a skunk or something, must, something that really smells that they've sat that far away. But um, I don't know what you've uh, said for yourself. But um, here's another question for you. What kind of animal would you say that Jesus is most like? That may seem like a bit of a weird question to you, um, and some of you haven't been here for this series that we've been doing in John, those of you from Hope Church, but uh, a few weeks ago, we heard about how Jesus is the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God, said, says John, who takes away the sin of the world. And if you've ever read the Narnia books by C.S. Lewis, uh, or seen the films, then you know that Lewis presents his Jesus-like figure as a lion. 
In fact, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the, the book, not the film, and there's a moment when our heroes are having this magnificent breakfast, actually, with uh, a lamb who's cooked it for them, interestingly. And the lamb suddenly transforms into this giant lion, Aslan himself. And in that, Lewis was illustrating how the Bible presents Jesus to us. He is gentle and humble like a lamb. But he's also courageous and ferocious as a lion, roaring and ruling over all he has made. And that's why in Mark chapter 3, we find Jesus healing this guy with a withered hand, and and the religious leaders are are standing around tutting and disapproving as kind of normal, uh, because he's done it on a Sabbath. And it says there, and he looked around at them in anger. He's appalled at their attitude. And there's nothing gentle in Jesus' response to Peter, get behind me, Satan, he says to him on one occasion. And I'm sure the Pharisees saw nothing of his meekness and his mildness when he said to them, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Folks, is this your view of Jesus? Well, if you're at all squeamish about a Jesus like that, look away now because in John chapter 2, he takes it to another level, doesn't he? For as he enters the temple in Jerusalem, he sees all the cattle and the birds and the sheep being sold for the sacrifices to be made there and the money changers ensuring that the adult males could have the right currency to pay their temple tax. He goes all Indiana Jones, doesn't he? And he starts making a whip. But please see here that that Jesus' anger is not like ours. He's not just lashing out indiscriminately all over the place at moments. No, he's quite methodical as he takes time to put the cords together. He's very measured. And this is a tool which, incidentally, herdsmen use to this day in order to get animals moving and keep them moving without ever touching them. That's what a whip does. And he does it because what he sees in this temple is so damaging to God's people that he can't just stand idly by. No. Jesus gets angry at injustice and hypocrisy, not least in the ruling elite and the religious authorities when they've gone astray. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. Because it shows that Jesus cares about what he's made. That he's passionate about us. You see, the opposite of love is is not actually hatred. It's indifference. Not caring. And so in verse 16, Jesus says, Take these things away. Get them out. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. What I want to show you this evening is, as he does this, Jesus exposes their hearts and he blows their minds. Do you see how he exposes their hearts? Jesus says, stop turning my dad's house. This is my dad's house. Stop turning into a market. That's why he's angry. So let's just have a little think about houses and markets. Let's talk about houses. What's a house? House is a place of relationship, isn't it? A place where 
you feel deep and loving connection, or at least it should be. We'd hope it to be that. And throughout the Old Testament, the temple is repeatedly called God's house. It's a bit weird, actually, when you think about it. I once made a house for a stag beetle. I don't think it liked it very much because the next day it was gone. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't a very good house. But how can you do that for God? You can't, you can't just pick him up like a beetle and, and, and put him in a house because God is everywhere. God fills the whole heavens. He is greater and bigger and more majestic than any other being in all the universe. And yet, the Bible tells us that God has a house because that is how he chose to meet with us. Too often I think we turn the gospel, the message of Jesus, into a simple question of how can I go and live in heaven when I die? How can I get the ticket for that? But that's not the question that the Bible is most interested in. The Bible asks the question, how can that God come and live with us? And so that great God said, I want you to build me a temple. And a guy called Solomon does it. (laughs) But even then, once it's finished, he prays, but will God really dwell on earth? He knows. (laughs) He, He says, I know you're not a stag beetle. I know that you can't fit into this puny little temple. Amazing how it looks to us. That's not what is actually happening here. No, what is happening is that God is moving in his great love towards us. He says, I will have a house so that you can come and make sacrifices to the God who loves to forgive sins. So you can come and have your heart stilled and listen to the God who guides and leads us by his word. So you can come and pour out your hearts in prayer to the God who protects and cares for and loves you more than you could ever imagine. It was a relational place, God's house. And so when Jesus enters the temple, he says, what have you done? What have you done to my father's house? You've turned it into a place of trade. So let's talk about places of trade. Tell me, what are shops and markets like? Markets are places of transaction, aren't they? You come to buy stuff. In markets, you get consumers picking and choosing, just figuring out what they want to get. In a market, you want to get away with paying the bare minimum, doing the bare minimum to get what you want. You know, you go to, I'm not paying that for a hot dog. Oh, that's outrageous. I'm You're having a laugh. Markets are busy places and noisy places where there's never any peace and space and Jesus says that's what you've turned my father's house into the God of heaven wants a relationship with humanity and yeah, I think we're often more interested in quick and easy transactions and what we can get for ourselves a quick buzz, a quick blast of God and then we're gone I wonder if you see any of that in your heart this evening. Let me try and throw a few symptoms out to you to look for. If you're more interested in a transaction in the relationship, then I think 
you very quickly come to God or church as a consumer, don't you? Trying to see what you can get. Trying to see if you can get your needs met. You come to be served rather than coming as a child to worship, to engage with God in in a way that you really open to what he wants to say and where he wants to lead you. And when we become consumers, I think we also very quickly become critics too, don't we? I mean, that's what happens at markets, doesn't it? Oh, this this avocado is a bit squishy and, oh, these apples are all bruised and, oh, these these avocados are better and, oh, these apples are so shiny. I have six of each. We become fault finders, don't we? It's so easy to come to worship the God of heaven who wants to know us. And, and, and yet instead of doing that and engaging, we, we, we sit back and we analyze and we critique. And we're, oh, I'm not, not sure about that song. And oh, <laughs> I hope this sermon doesn't go on very long. And I'm not, yeah, gosh, what is this guy thinking? Oh, it's so boring. Or whatever it might be. <clears throat> now we say, I don't think that St. Joseph's, you know, St. Joseph's, we're a very critical or moany church. I'm really thankful that, for that. But I've been in plenty of churches that are. And I see the seeds of it in my own heart. So easy for a bitter, critical root to embed itself there. So we need to beware. We need to check ourselves out. And we need to be wary of getting more noisy and busy too. I think that's another symptom. Marketplaces, generally speaking, are more noisy and busy than houses, aren't they? (laughs) And folks, I think we live in a culture that is useless at space and peace. (laughs) Like, like when we have a minute's silence for something, I don't think we know what to do with that. You find yourself going, oh, this is different this is taking is this a minute is it taking ages what what am I supposed to do now is it okay that I'm thinking about what to have for tea or making a shopping list in my head and when we find ourselves at a loose end somewhere waiting for a train or a bus stop or wherever it might be what's the first thing we do reach for our pocket computer don't we I don't know what to do I've got to fill my mind with something Otherwise, I might have to listen to what's in my mind. That's frightening. Does it even occur to us that moments like that are opportunities to pray, to still ourselves, to, to meditate and memorize the, on the, memorize the promises of God? Now, now, don't get me wrong. Houses are places where there are noise and Joy and happiness and laughter. We want them to be those kind of places. We want church to be that kind of place, don't we? But we also want them to be places, spaces where we can just be. So I want to say to us, we need to resist the cultural obsession with filling every waking moment with activity and, and striving to achieve something. A full diary, both personally but, but also as a church, may well send a message that, that we are very productive and active and, and worthwhile 
as a church or as people. But it may well be at the cost of enjoying silence and space, relational quality with the God who wants to know us and be known by us. And who alone energizes and empowers all of our doing. Jesus himself said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing worthwhile. And I think transactional also means that we pitch up to do the bare minimum, don't we? <laughs> We're like, it's like when you go to the market and someone says, this banana costs 50p. You go, 50p? All right, I'll give you a tenner. <laughs> You'd never do that, would you? You go, 50p? Oh, come on, it's already going a little bit brown. I'll give you 30. And that's, what's, that's how transactional relationship works. What's the bare minimum I have to do? And that's what was happening here in the temple. It, it's become all about the money and the convenience. This, this market, actually, it used to be across the valley from Jerusalem. And they, they brought it in to the temple courts for the convenience of those coming along to do their duty or to sell their wares. I wonder if sometimes we're like that with church. What's the bare minimum I have to do? What's the latest I can arrive? And the earliest I can leave? Are we nearly done yet? How long is this going to take? That's not how houses work, right? Is it? I mean, like if, if I was to have you over to my house for dinner and you phoned me up or texted me and went, just want to know, what's the latest I can pitch up for dinner? And uh, when can I get away without offending you? <laughs> I mean, that'd be rude, wouldn't it? I'd be like, don't bother. Which I guess is what Jesus is saying here, isn't he? Get out. I will not accept your half-hearted efforts. Come to my Father's house with a heart open to what he wants to do, with a heart open to worship. Come like the psalmist from Psalm 84, hungry to know the Lord, saying, yeah, saying, my heart longs for you. Yes, yearns for you. What one day with you? Better than a thousand doing anything else. And as Jesus says that, he exposes their hearts and ours too. But then he blows their minds. As the Jews in verse 18 say, what, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I mean, I think it's remarkable that they even asked that after the Miami's course. I, 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 I read this every time. I fully expect some burly security guards to come busting in going, all right, fella, oh, do you want to go quietly or are you going to make this difficult for yourself? Let's get you out here. But they don't. The Jews, kind of understandably, they ask Jesus, come on, give us a sign. What authority have you got to, to, to do this? Who, who are you? And then Jesus, he, he says, the most extraordinary thing, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They gently suggest to him that that's unlikely, pointing out the fact that it takes a little while, one or two years, to build a temple. But they haven't a clue what he's actually saying. 
Because he's not talking about a building, he's talking about his body. Jesus is actually really saying here, I'm the temple. I'm the temple. For years and years and years, the temple was the place of relationship where you could come to enjoy God and know God and bring sacrifices, offerings to God. And then Jesus comes along and he says, God has now come to earth. And it's me. Oh, wow. That sounds a lot like the temple, doesn't it? God coming to earth. Only not now in a temple in part, but fully in flesh and blood. The God who made everything now comes and dwells in bodily fullness in Jesus Christ. And so if you want to meet God now, you have to go through Jesus. It's the only way. And how is Jesus going to become this meeting point? Well, he says to them, doesn't he? What has to happen? Destroy me. You have to destroy me. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus is crystal clear that the reason he has come is so that his body can be destroyed. And so when he's crucified on the cross and then three days later he rises again, then you will know, you will know, you will know, you will know that Jesus has the authority to come and get rid of the temple because he is the temple. That's your sign. Because it's when Jesus died on the cross that he pays the penalty for sin. The penalty that all of these sacrifices of animals was, 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 was supposed to be paying for, covering, but are now no longer needed because Jesus is here. So <laughs> you don't need any cows anymore. Get them out. You don't need any pigeons anymore. Get those out of here. You don't need sheep anymore. You don't even need a temple because Jesus is going to be the true sacrifice offered in the true temple who will be destroyed and then raised so that you and I can know God. And that's what the heart of the Christian message is. You can have a relationship with God through this man, Jesus. Not a transaction, but a full and joyous and loving relationship. Maybe that's the first time that you've heard that. And it's kind of hard to get your head around it. Well, you're in good company there, aren't you? Because nobody understood Jesus when he first said this. But then in verse, 15, verse 22, verse 22, it says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. <laughs> what a moment that must have been. <laughs> Jesus was raised from the dead, and there's the disciples, they're, they're, they're hanging around, maybe in the upper room, Wondering what else is going to happen next. And then one of them goes, Oh, guys, I've had a thought. <laughs> the temple, it was about him all along, guys. And that means that we now don't have holy places because Jesus is the holy God. And so we like Hope Church and many other churches like them 
don't actually need a building of our own to meet in because we can meet God anywhere through Jesus, whether it's a museum or a school or wherever, even our own bedroom. I can also say it means that we don't need fancy buildings to make us feel closer to God. So don't walk into St. Paul's Cathedral and, and, and tell me that's what it does for you. No building can do that for you. Tell me that the architecture is magnificent. Tell me that Christopher Wren was a genius. Tell me that the acoustics are wonderful. But don't tell me that you're meeting God. Because that can only happen through Jesus. And don't say the same thing either about the cathedral of nature. Because you are no closer to God at the top of a mountain than you are at the metro center. For Jesus is with you in either place. And you don't need to go on pilgrimage to some special place in France where you can have a special experience of God. Or be in an incredible crowd at Word Alive, singing incredible worship songs with a great band. There is no other place that you have to go. You just come to Jesus and you meet God through him. Folks, one of my great fears for my own heart, as well as one of my great fears for us as a church, is that we settle into a form of church that is the transactional stuff, the obligations, the coming every week to church, to our small groups. So we're here, here all, every time. We're always there, but we never really come to know God because we never actually come to trust in Jesus. In verse 23, it's interesting. People are impressed by Jesus. People see the signs, the miracles. They believe in him. But Jesus isn't fooled. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And so Jesus knows you also. He knows what is in your heart this evening. He knows where you're at. And maybe this evening is an opportunity for some of us, maybe all of us, to say to Jesus, I'm sorry. I've just been putting on a show. I'm sorry that I've been going through the motions, that I've treated this as just a transactional thing. I'm sorry. Oh, Jesus, please, would you... Tear through the shadows of my soul with the glory of God so that I can come to know you truly, fully, wonderfully. And so, as I close, I'm, I'm going to give us a moment to do that, to pray on our own. Let's ask Jesus to expose our hearts and what's in them and then blow our minds with the greatness and the glory of God. Let's take a few moments of quiet in which to do that, and then we'll sing again. Let's pray.
Oh, Father God, we thank you so much for Jesus. So please hear our prayers, whatever they were, wherever we're at with you this evening. And draw our hearts this Christmas time to see and savor him, to know his glory and his greatness, that we might worship him in spirit and truth. Amen.